Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Nicole Kirby. Asylum seekers have dominated the Australian political debate for well over a decade. Both sides of politics have created the current situation, where there are over 2,000 asylum seekers in immigration detention facilities, including 138 children. Earlier this year, the Australian Human Rights Commission released a Forgotten Children report that looked at the conditions for children in immigration detention. The report found nearly 300 instances of actual or threatened self-harm between January 2013 and March 2014. It revealed that more than one-third of children detained have developed a mental illness requiring psychiatric care. On Women on the Line this week, I speak with Elizabeth Elliott, Professor of Paediatrics and Child Health at the University of Sydney. Elizabeth travelled with Gillian Triggs, the Human Rights Commission President, and her team to Christmas Island in 2014. There they investigated the conditions for children and families in detention. Elizabeth tells us about what she witnessed. Later on the show, I speak with a grassroots group in Melbourne who have organised in solidarity with families, women and children in immigration detention. Caroline and Gabrielle from Friends, Families and Feminists Against Detention tell me about creating a political movement that's inclusive of families and children. But first, here's Elizabeth Elliott, Professor of Paediatrics and Child Health at the University of Sydney. We travelled to Christmas Island and I was fortunate to be part of the Human Rights Commission uh, team in July of 2014 Um, and it was really quite an incredible experience in many ways, so very distressing. Um, We set out from Perth but were actually held up in Perth for over two days because there was some damage to the runway on Christmas Island and this really illustrated to us what an inaccessible and remote place it was and I was really quite concerned even from that stage that if there was a child very sick on the island it could be quite difficult to to get them in or to get medical person to get them out or to get medical personnel in uh, we finally arrived at Christmas Island which is in a very remote location about three or four thousand miles I think from Perth and Darwin uh, it's in a tropical zone and hence has very hot, humid and wet weather with a distinct wet season. And it's a site that for many years has been a phosphate mine, so there's a lot of sort of white dust around the place. And of course it's very hot and, and uncomfortable. It's quite an inhospitable place. So when you entered the island, you then went to the immigration detention facility. Can you describe what that facility was like and what you found there? Yes, well, look, we had really unfettered access into the accommodation of people living, asylum seekers living on Christmas Island, and we were able to talk to them unaccompanied um, by guards or immigration officers as part of the human rights team. And that was really very revealing because we heard some really very distressing stories. But first of all, to get into the, the detention facility, you have to give up your passport and your phone and any cameras. Uh, that you have, you have to have your bag searched. 
and really once inside you have to be escorted from place to place um, by guards. Um, people are not allowed to move freely outside their compound, their living compound, and the compounds that we visited were, were pretty typical, I think. There were rows of small bunker-like um, uh, homes. Uh, in fact, they looked like shipping containers. They were divided in half with a shared bathroom in, in the middle. And there were long rows of these either side of a wooden um, decking. And there was only a door onto the wooden deck, no window. The window was on the outside and there was a small air conditioner in each unit. So these were very small, about three by three metre um, rooms, which were really very cramped. And you can imagine trying to have a toddler in a room like that or a toddler and a baby. Um, so very cramped conditions, very unsociable. Um, uh, the parents complained that the walkway, people spat and weed on the walkway, so they didn't like putting their baby down on that. So there was a very limited place for children to develop and learn to crawl and walk, although we did see evidence of um, two new play areas being built when we were there. And, I mean, you mentioned the limitations on that kind of physical development in terms of learning to walk. A lot has been said about the conditions around immigration detention and the impact that they might have on child development. Now, you're a professor in paediatrics and child health. What were your observations about the way in which children were developing or not developing while they were in these facilities? Well, look, we did, um, as I said, hundreds of, of interviews with families with young children, and families complained that their children had become anxious and tearful, their young children, that they had started bedwetting, that they had regressed in their behaviours, that some of them had regressed in their speech, for example. Then the older children complained of nightmares and, and flashbacks, either of what they'd experienced in their home country or on the boat on the way to, to Christmas Island. And then the older children, again, were able to articulate quite clearly the trauma that they'd experienced at home, witnessing abductions, shootings, various other things, uh, on the boat, and then after arrival in Christmas Island. And particularly distressing were the unaccompanied minors who'd often been sent away for a, for a better life from a very uh, distressing home situation and then found themselves in an equally uh, unhospitable place. We did lots of interviews, as I said, but there was a formal assessment done of the mental health of these children um, by the Department of Immigration's doctors, and they found significant mental ill health in these children at a rate of, I think, about 34%, which is significantly higher than you would see even in children attending child and adolescent family um, psychiatry services in, in, the, in Australia. Yeah, and I think I've seen that um, compared to the 2% that is um, the average rate for mental ill health amongst children in the general population. So it's many, many, many exactly. times more. Yeah. And of course, you know, there were many recorded episodes of self-harm, actual self-harm in, in children, uh, and they were actually recorded and reported to the Commission by the Immigration Department, so they weren't our data. And then, of course, there was the very distressing element of the mothers of young children who had attempted suicide and uh, there were certainly 10 of those women under 24-hour surveillance when we visited Christmas Island. Have these reports been responded to adequately by 
the people that are administering the immigration detention facilities and by the federal government, do you think? Uh, well, uh, of course, there are no people uh, with children on Christmas Island any longer. Um, but we certainly felt that the services were inadequate. Um, to have 10 young women with young children uh, on 24-hour watch because they were at risk of committing suicide because they had previously self-harmed and many of whom were extremely depressed. Um, and not even having a psychiatrist permanently on the island was totally inadequate. Um, these people were being guarded or watched by guards rather than mental health personnel. And again, that's not the sort of thing that we believe is appropriate for severe mental illness. Uh, many of them reported that they didn't want to take the sedating medication that they'd been given because they were trying to breastfeed babies and uh, they didn't want to be zonked out. And really at the root of all of this was the feelings of, of, of helplessness and hopelessness and loss of hope because most of them had been there for many months and hadn't even yet been uh, assessed uh, with regard to their validity of their um, uh, refugee status. Do families and children and women with children have particular needs in these circumstances, do you think? Well, I think so. I mean, you know, for a start, there's lack of freedom, there's a lack of opportunity for normal development, for play and for recreation and sport. And what was also distressing for the, the older children was that many of these children hadn't been to school for 15 or 17 months. Um, and, and, you know, that was extremely distressing for them and would have been a normalising experience and at least meant that they were not missing out educationally for all these months um, while they were, they were detained. So it really is a most inappropriate place for families with children, let alone that many of them required specialist medical help, which was a long way away on the mainland, and they would have to wait until the time became appropriate where there was both a specialist available in Australia to see them and room in a detention centre co-located to that specialist, uh, which would allow them to, to travel and stay and be seen by the, the appropriate services. Women on the line. I guess our concern really, and, and this was one of the reasons we were so upset that the um, government paid little, in atten little attention to the data that was contained in the inquiry report, is that the sort of traumas that these children have already suffered won't just disappear once they leave detention. So many of these children will have post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, someone asked me, well, you know, how could you compare that to other children? So if you think about children who've been sexually abused or children who've witnessed the death of a parent or children who've witnessed traumatic events, children who've been involved in a fire or an accident or a an accident at sea, that stays with them for, for many years. And um, certainly judging by the mental ill health and the behavioural and other problems that these children were having on Christmas Island, you know, they were many of them were in need of ongoing support, as were their parents. And, of course, for the parents, they still, they only have a permanent, um, a, a temporary protection visa at the moment, so they still have this uncertainty about their future and it's the uncertainty, I think, that's um, very depressing and debilitating. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, you also reported, well, that report uh, reported that at least 12 children were born in immigration detention centres and so are stateless and may be denied 
their right to nationality and to protection into the future. So, uh, yeah, I suppose this raises a number of issues in terms mm, of that instability absolutely. and uncertainty. And, I mean, if you look at this in terms of the UN Convention for the Rights of Refugees, the Rights of the Child, um, these children were being denied many of the, their basic um, human rights. And then also if you compare the way that we're treating our asylum seekers compared to other countries, it's very clearly stated in the UN and other conventions that mandatory detention for arbitrary reasons should be a, a, a thing of last resort and that it should be for the minimum possible time to uh, until such time as people have been assessed, obviously, for a security risk and for, for health risks. But that particularly for children, you know, that arbitrary detention and for, particularly for prolonged periods is very damaging. Mm. And do you feel that it is arbitrary and, and not a last resort? Uh, well, yes, it is. I mean, people have been kept for 17, 18, 19 months without having their claims assessed, uh, whereas if you're in the UK, people are assessed and within 24 hours usually people with families are put in community detention until they can be um, adequately processed. So we're doing things quite differently to many other places in the mm. world. And I mean, you also mentioned unaccompanied children earlier. As it stands, the Minister for Immigration, which was Scott Morrison and is now Peter Dutton, the Minister for Immigration is a guardian of unaccompanied children. So those children, um, yeah, they, he has the responsibility to act in their best interests. From what you witnessed, do you think that uh, that responsibility has been adequately carried out? Well, well I think it's a conflicted um, position um, to have the Minister for Immigration who's deciding about the future of these people also responsible for uh, their well-being is, is quite a difficult situation, I think, and uh, it would perhaps be better to have an independent guardian. That was Elizabeth Elliott, Professor in Paediatrics and Child Health at the University of Sydney. In July 2014, she visited Christmas Island with Gillian Triggs and the Human Rights Commission as part of their inquiry into the children in immigration detention. You can read the full findings of that inquiry at the Australian Human Rights Commission website, www.humanrights.gov.au Around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line and I'm Nicole Kirby. Next, you'll hear from Caroline and Gabrielle from Friends, Families and Feminists Against Detention. They're a Melbourne-based group who have joined together to show their opposition to the federal government's policies towards asylum seekers and to send a message of solidarity to asylum seekers in detention. Thanks for joining us on Women on the Line, Caroline and Gabrielle. You're from Friends, Families and Feminists Against Detention, which is a new group that has started up in Melbourne. Do you want to tell us why you decided to start this group? What inspired the, the group? We'd been reading a lot about what had been happening on Nauru in terms of the sexual assault on children, but also some of the language and responses to the sexual violence on women. So Tony Abbott had responded by saying that sometimes things happen in institutional context, things happen. And I know for me that made me really angry because not only do we know now that the government knew 17 months before the MOSS report came out that sexual assault was happening in the detention centres, but he's actually normalising it. Um, using that language and I guess for women 
who are acutely aware of um, sexual violence and a threat of sexual violence all around us, that kind of language is really damaging, not just for asylum seekers in detention, but for all women. What's going on in detention centres, particularly on Nauru and Manus Island, is completely horrific. And I think a lot of us have felt a real drive to want to respond meaningfully and offer some meaningful solidarity to the really powerful protest movements that are happening within those detention centres. So, yeah, that was the main reason that we formed, was to send solidarity to asylum seekers, particularly on Nauru, families on Nauru, but also to send a really clear message to the government that we oppose all these different facets of their policy, particularly for women, families and children. And speaking of that, the policy and the impact that the policy has on people who are in immigration detention, can you tell listeners a little bit about the kinds of conditions that women, children and families are experiencing on places like Manus Island, Nauru, Christmas Island? Well, firstly, families are being separated. So women and children are um, being placed in one environment, men are being placed in another environment with absolutely no regard for the, the sanctity of a family unit, whatever someone might choose to call that family unit, whether it's extended family, whether it's a carer that's been looking after a child. There are children who are there um, without parents as well and who are being held in detention. Um, there are incidents of sexual assault involving children. There are children who are self-harming. There's, um, there was the, a five-year-old in Darwin who was going to be sent back to Nauru who was suffering from psychiatric illness because of her experiences. And there's a complete disregard for for their well-being. And that really spoke to, to me as, as a new mother. Um, I couldn't imagine raising a child in those conditions. There was one one story that really struck me as well before we kind of started formalising some of the networks that we've been having these discussions around. But there was a couple, it was a Chinese couple up in Sydney and the woman, the woman and the partner was just under nine months pregnant and the, the couple were being transferred up to Darwin, which is usually the point that they go before they're being transferred um, to Nauru or Manus Island and she fainted at the airport and so at Sydney Airport um, and instead of keeping the couple in Sydney they decided that they would transfer the couple drive them 10 hours down to Melbourne and then catch a private jet put her on a private jet with 20 other Serco guards up to um, Wickham Point Detention Centre in in Darwin and that just I just couldn't understand like the government is sending heavily pregnant women to Nauru where in the last week they haven't even had water for five days like how can babies be born in that environment and that didn't even make the news that story didn't even make the news Mm. and it's dehumanising for everyone, but there are specific health imperatives for women and children which are actively being ignored by the government. And, you know, that was just a really blatant example of that for me. So you've organised, your group is called Friends, Families and Feminists Against Detention, and you mentioned that you've organised in solidarity as women who are on mainland Australia and families and friends and feminists. Tell me a little bit about that way of organising and why you've chosen to organise in solidarity in this way. 
Well, it was a particular response to organising that was happening on Nauru. So um, families and um, particularly um, women that had organised protests and um, had banners saying stop the violence, stop the silence, which we know as fairly common feminist slogans for gendered violence here as well. When we started talking about starting the group, there have been demonstrations on Nauru where um, I think around 200 people had been arrested. They'd had the Nauru government had put um, conditions on their ability to organise, including having quite substantial fines for protesting uh, outside of the permission of the government there, including jail term as an option. And so despite all of this, these families and children were coming out and, you know, being quite heavily targeted and we felt that was worthy of a response. And so there's so many issues that are ongoing for families in detention, family separation between detention centres when also for coming into the mainland for medical assistance, there's family separation there, there's family separation, you know, with people in detention and now people on bridging visas in the community. Um, so this is ongoing, this issue is ongoing, as well as the treatment of as long as Nairo exists and as long as we're still sending people there, we will be organising against that, particularly for women and children in that environment that are suffering such severe and repeated sexual violence and, and violence in other ways. So, And I guess we want them to know that we're thinking of them. If our message gets to them, then hopefully that provides some hope and some strength to them and their struggle. And so as... Um, as a family, uh, as a feminist, as a, a friend of these people, I wanted to come along with my family. Um, I enjoy such um, freedom and hygiene and safety that these people aren't afforded. And I think that that stark contrast is something really powerful. And we came together um, in a really peaceful way for our first event, um, and I imagine it will be peaceful for the future events as well. You are a new group and you have had your first action. And mm. Gabrielle, you brought along your very new baby to the first action. So tell me a little bit about that action and about involving small children in that action. Together with the group we met, we met on, in a park near the CBD. And we decided to take our protest to the Department of Immigration uh, on Lonsdale Street and Spring, Spring Street. And we came with our prams and our mats and our toys and our signs um, that we'd made for the event, and we set up a, a play-in. So for those of those who have participated in a sit-in, it's very similar, except it's a lot more playful and colourful and really quite um, peaceful. We stayed there for a few hours. We um, made a, a video in solidarity with the um, families on Nauru, and we communicated our concerns to to the staff there at the immigration department. And, yeah, I was there with my partner and my eight-month-old baby, and there were maybe about 50 people who were members of families, and well, everyone's a member of a family, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and feminists and friends of those people <laughs> as well. Yeah, there was probably about, mm, about 10 
little babies and smalls at the action and a few bit older kids there, did you say? Yeah, yeah a few older kids as well. Yeah. Um, ten years ten year old and it was a really great way to involve uh, families in a protest for people who feel frustrated because they um, don't want to go to these boisterous rallies or, um, you know, get involved in more active um, kind of events. It's a really great way to voice uh, opposition without the threat of, of any kind of misunderstanding as to why they're there. The um, security guards who were there understood that this was a an environment that required special attention. It wasn't a group of, you know, boisterous activists. It was children and families. Um, so it had a really different atmosphere to any other protests that I've ever been to. It was it was really quite special. And what what are the demands of the group at the moment? I guess the two overarching demands is an end to mandatory detention and offshore processing. That's kind of one that we share with probably all the groups. Mm. Um, and then specifically around women, children, and um, and families. I guess we we're not looking to necessarily improve the conditions for them in those camps. Mm. It's the very existence of those camps, of the prisons that they're in, that that is wrong. Um, so we would we would echo the call of the um, Save the Children staff and of the uh, of the people in the detention centres themselves to shut down those camps and to process all asylum seekers that come to Australia in communities um, where they are free and when they are safe and to process them quickly. We also have been talking about amongst us not just uh, ways to end the system but to also have justice for asylum seekers that have been harmed by this government, this government policy, this conscious harm from the government, knowledge, they've been knowledgeable of the harm that's been going on there. Um, So, you know, we would like to see justice for asylum seekers and one of the things that we've been talking about is reparations for women and kids that have suffered sexual violence within these detention centres. So that means financial compensation and you know assistance accessing support services for dealing with trauma within the community, not in the detention centres within the community. So, but we want to you know fundamentally we don't want to repair the system. We don't want it to work more smoothly. It's rotten. We have to get rid of it. As it stands, Friends, Family and Feminists Against Detention is a Melbourne-based group. People in other parts of Australia do want to show their solidarity in similar ways. Can they do that or can they? are there other groups they can access or can they start their own groups? Well, it, it only takes two people, I guess, to start a group. So I, I would encourage people to just um, start a group and put it out there. Organising is so easy with social media. Yeah. We've had such an unbelievably positive response from our organising. That includes not just from networks, uh, family networks with kids who uh, are really, um, you know, and rightly so, um, careful about bringing what kind of actions or um, organising spaces that they bring their kids to have been really into the kind of organising that we've been doing and also um, 
we've been in contact with multiple different women's health organisations, organisations working around gendered violence or migrant support services who have also been really supportive of our group um, and what we've been doing. So, And if anyone wants to contact us to ask us about you know, how we formed or ways to try and organise and network things, we'd be happy to talk to people. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us on Women on the Line, Caroline and Gabrielle. Yeah, thanks, Pleasure. Michelle. Thank you. You're listening to Women on the Line, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. That was Caroline and Gabrielle from Friends, Families and Feminists Against Detention. If you want to get in touch with them, you can email them at ffadmelbourne at gmail.com or find them on Facebook, FFFAD. In Melbourne, the next gathering is planned for the 21st of May. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Thanks to the guests on this week's program. Elizabeth Elliott, Professor in Paediatrics and Child Health at the University of Sydney, and Carolyn Morwitzer and Gabrielle de Vietri from Friends, Families and Feminists Against Detention. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at hotmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, womenontheline.org.au, or through the 3CR website. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm Nicole Kirby. I hope you can tune in again next time.